Previously on Serial Dater. I had one foot out of the city when I matched with a young man named Calvin. Where are you? I'm in Glasgow. I'm in Edinburgh now. And even worse, I live in the south. Like England. Of course I'd come to Edinburgh. Calvin pulled me into a doorway and kissed me on the mouth. Fuck, was he good at kissing. It's one of the finest memories I have. I sort of melodramatically acknowledged that my life would now be separated into the time leading up to meeting Calvin and the time after it. I was anxious to see him again. I'm busy in the next couple of weeks, but what about February? The second weekend in February was Valentine's Day. I now have to work this upcoming weekend, so there's no way I can see you. So I'm getting the feeling that you are continuing avoiding talking to me. He never replied. Hey there, I started, nearly two months after we'd last spoken. Bit mad. Calvin replied, as if our ceasing communication previously had been an unfortunate mutual occurrence. I was just thinking about you. What exactly were you thinking about me? I was thinking about how I should have explained why I abruptly stopped messaging you. Sorry. I did like you. I would very much like to still see you again. By April 14th, not having heard from Calvin for a full week, I decided that I might have to make my own closure. So I added on an extra day to my trip. I would head up to Glasgow, and then I would take a nine-hour megabus from Glasgow back down to London. I'm coming to Glasgow. I'd really, really like to see you. Of course I want to see you if you're going to be in the city. I'm excited to see you tomorrow. It was amazing how quickly all the bad feeling melted out of me. Why did it get so intense? On our first date, I started falling in love with you. I just really thought you wouldn't like me anymore. You should come to Brighton, but I don't want you to say you're going to come if you don't want to. No, I want to come to Brighton. I gave Calvin one last kiss. What could I have done differently if I'd known that it was the last time I would see him? The Megabus from Glasgow to London cost one pound plus 50 pence processing fee and took nine hours. But guess what? When you're drunk in love, a nine-hour bus ride isn't actually all that annoying. Especially when you're getting texts like these. Really happy you came to visit. We chatted for a bit, stupidly, unimportantly. It did not last the whole way. As arduous as my long bus ride was, he was spending his day at work degreasing a refrigerator at the pub. But I was resting in the rosy afterglow of the knowledge that whatever had happened before between us was equal parts misunderstanding, insecurity, and panic really on both sides. Things weren't completely sorted, but in my eyes, they had a decent chance of getting there. I thought that, now that we had discussed everything thoroughly, that I understood where Calvin was coming from, and what he needed from me was just some gentle reminding, and maybe the occasional reiteration that I still liked him. It's hard for me not to look back on this past version of myself and not shake my head at my naivete, how could I walk right back into the same position I had found myself in two and a half months earlier? How could I trust him again so quickly and so soon? The answer is, I don't know. The only answer I have for that question is another question. How could I not? The entire enterprise, falling for him in Edinburgh, getting flushed down the emotional toilet in Brighton, giving him the time of day when he resurfaced, contorting a trip up to Glasgow, it all required me to place a lot of trust in him. And I was glad to give it. Or maybe that's not quite right. I had no choice but to give it. I liked him too much. I felt too much of a connection with him to start distrusting him. I don't want to make it seem like I chose to trust him. By going forward with him, I had to. Plus, at this point, distrusting him would have required a great deal of effort and discipline. In my aspirational, narrow-scope assessment of the situation, I decided that the best way forward was a pre-existing arrangement where I would text him once a day until he booked his tickets. 
In my mind, this was something that would occur within days, certainly within the week. He needed a little help getting past minor bureaucratic hurdles. I even created a hashtag for his upcoming visit after he'd complimented me on hashtag only a northern weekend. What do you think of hashtag hot Scott South? I asked. He wrote back, I won't lie, that is a mighty hashtag. I'm Charlie Beckerman, and this is Hashtag Serial Dater UK Edition. Episode 6, The Market. The day after I arrived back in Brighton, I looked up a handful of possible train and bus fares for Calvin, nervously texting them over, practically begging him to let me book them for him. There are £1 fares on Saturday, May 14th at 11am, or Tuesday, May 17th at 12.30. The best train fares I could come up with were in the neighborhood, American spelling, sorry, neighborhood, British spelling, of 45 to £60, if you're feeling flush. Also, there are a few £30 Ryanair fares to Stansted, one of London's further flung airports, which caters to low-cost airlines, though it seems to be a pain to get anywhere from Stansted. There are £80 fares to Gatwick, but what are you, a Saudi prince? All of this, it should be said, is an amalgamation of several text messages, though I can imagine it probably still felt like a bit of an onslaught. Well, you've really done your research, he replied, and the Megabus site is awful and tedious. Brownie points were bearing with it. I have a young person's rail card, so I'll have a wee search and probs get the train hella cheap. Although getting the train does allow for the temptation to get drunk on transit. Beers clinking emoji. Extortionate prices, obviously. Why is the idea of collecting a drunk Calvin at Euston Station strangely arousing? I wrote back. At first, the plan of texting him once a day felt like a good way to channel my enthusiasm, and seemed like a perfectly good antidote for his self-professed poor planning skills. I was envisioning a Calvin who was getting home every day and then saying to himself, oh shit, I forgot to check my work schedule again, which frankly is something I could see myself doing. For the first week or so, I would send my daily missive and heard back maybe two or three times. One time he called me. We would have spoken for longer than we did, but I was with a friend, and at that point, I wasn't feeling insecure about where we stood. There were more calls in our future, surely, and so we hung up fairly quickly. But most importantly, if I texted him and didn't hear back from him, that was fine. Somewhere in here, I started numbering the days, which, in retrospect, was probably a mistake. Hashtag Hot Scott South Day 3. Greetings from London. Come south already. Hashtag Hot Scott South Day 4. I realize that this daily texting might end up being just as much as a disincentive as a motivator, but I've already committed to the bit. Anyway, if at any point it becomes prohibitively annoying, I can stop if you want. Alternatively, I can keep messaging you once a day even after you book your tickets, but, you know, victim's choice. Hashtag Hot Scott South Day 5. Back in Brighton, which is showing off by being extra pretty. Not as pretty as you, but what can you do? Hashtag Hot Scott South Day 6. I'm not sure I have anything plan-related to add into the mix today, so I'll just use this as an excuse to say I still want you to come to Brighton and I still really fancy you and all that other horseshit. I didn't get any responses to these messages, and on day 7, I attempted a phone call. There was no pickup, and so I left a voicemail. On day 8, I must have already been panicking because I resorted to one of my trusty multiple-choice texts, which I had used in the past and which had yielded some results. Thrown into the mix was a complication of a visit I'd planned back to New York for my sister's college graduation for the beginning of May. And though I'd been optimistic, okay, excessively optimistic, 
that Calvin's Brighton trip would happen before I had to head to the States, it was becoming increasingly clear that it wasn't looking that likely. Hey, he wrote, I got your voicemail, but unfortunately was not out having fun. I was working, of course. Working loads this week as I'm off the weekend for that forest disco. Another unfortunate is that I won't make it to sea until after America, but I'll book something this week or next for the end of May, the start of June, and I'll let you know as soon as I've booked it. Flex and bicep emoji. Rad, I replied. I mean, sad that I can't see you, but all the other stuff is good, good, good. We're already in May, so it's not so far away, he said. Are you excited to be among Americans? We talked about my trip to New York. He even counseled me to make sure I actually enjoyed my trip and didn't spend the whole time, quote, taking off people to see, suggesting a pants party in the village, for example. Can I ask you a very ridiculous question, I said. Always. Keep in mind that no is a perfectly reasonable answer. Go for it. And you also can think about it. I'm excited. What if I came up for a couple of nights between my term paper hand-in date and when I have to leave for the States? I know it's not my turn, and it would only be if I can find reasonable fares. You're special, but, I mean, come on. I just like looking at you is all. We got our wires slightly crossed, trying to figure out which dates I meant. It turned out that he was heading to a music festival in the woods that weekend. So the next weekend, I'll be working, I'm afraid, because I have this weekend off. No, I figured you'd be working, I said, meaning I didn't mind coming up while he was working, though I did not express that. Sit tight. New York will be soon enough, and then I'll be down to see you. Okay, okay, I said. I'm still planning on keeping the hashtag going until you book something. Stuck out tongue emoji. I hope you do, he replied. I'm terrible for arranging things. Not because I don't want to do them. Just that I tend to leave things too late. We kept chatting, him teasing me with the information that the festival was Star Wars themed, and said if it was only going to be a bit warmer he'd go for the Princess Leia bikini. I had never been particularly partial to that bit of nerd fantasy until that moment, but wow, that was quite an image. I returned to the established format. Hashtag HotScotSouth Day 9. You don't get any cleverness today because it's all gone into my paper and all that's left in my head is cotton candy. Hashtag HotScotSouth Day 11. Sorry to blow up your phone so early, but about to dive into work. Hashtag HotScotSouth Day 14. Keeping bankers hours trying to get my papers done. Hashtag HotScotSouth Day 16. Second to last day of paper writing. I've been eating pretty atrociously, so I hope you like fat Americans. Hashtag HotScotSouth Day 18. Thought I would be drunker so I could send you some drunk texts, but sadly it's just mostly regular me. On day 19, May 13th, I sent another multiple-choice text in the afternoon. But at what appears to be 4 in the morning, I opened WhatsApp to see he'd been on since I'd sent it. And not only had he been on, he was still on at that moment. Boo, I said, like a ghost, but rereading it now, it looks like I'm booing him. He wrote back. Yeah, so I need you to leave this for a while. Today we had a memorial service for a friend who killed himself last week. He's Spanish, so his parents are over here to take his body. I felt awful. Here I'd been doing this playful nonsense, and he was going through what was likely one of the worst experiences of his life. Oh no, man, that's awful. Are you doing okay? Or at least well enough? Everyone's pretty fucked, he wrote back, 
I noticed choosing to speak for the collective over his own individual feelings. We've got about £2,000 raised to plant a tree in a memorial of some sort also. We're drinking. Yeah, pretty fucked sounds about right, as does the drinking. And it's nice you guys are doing something for him, memorial-wise. What I really wanted to do at that moment was to go straight to Glasgow and hold the poor guy in my arms. But that wasn't what he was asking for. He was asking me to leave it. So what else could I do? And I'll leave it, I said. If you ever need to talk about whatever, I've always got time for you, regardless of whatever we get up to. And I left it, which was hard. As the first few days after this chat dragged on without me hearing a word from him, I had angry urges to let him know how his first ghosting had made me feel, a vindictive desire to say something like, why aren't you worried about me? But ultimately, my reading of Leave It was, give me a bit of time to work through this, and then we'll be back on track. So far as I knew, nothing had fundamentally changed in our whatever ship. I waited two weeks before I texted him again, which for me in this situation is kind of a lot. Finally, I reached out just to check in. It was just a simple, hey man, how are you holding up? I didn't hear back. But now a new weird deadline was approaching. The Fulbright end of year meeting was going to be in Glasgow. I had berated myself for not leaving enough time in Glasgow on my previous visit and still sticking to, let's be real, clinging to, The idea that the basic tenet of I like you, you like me, let's hang out some more still existed, I booked a ticket to arrive in Glasgow a few days before the meeting started, thinking at the very least I could see Calvin before and after work. I was the first to acknowledge that things weren't looking amazing for the two of us, but also I hadn't received any information to the contrary. Preemptively abandoning all desire to see Calvin seemed as foolish as it was overreactive. I texted him a week later, on June 1st, reminding him I'd be up in Glasgow, letting him know that I'd booked a ticket, and perhaps somewhat presumptuously saying I'd love to stay with him, but could make other plans. I hope you're doing okay, and I really look forward to seeing you. No reply. I'm getting from this Now that my classes were over, my routine had become haunting the Sussex University Library every day to work on my research and dissertation. For lunch, if none of my course mates were around, I'd go sit in the lawn and try to soak up as much vitamin D as I could. It was during one of these sun sessions that I sort of had a breakthrough. I was listening to one of Tara Brock's podcasts, which I've tried in vain to find again, where she was talking about the trance of unworthiness, describing how easy it can be for us to doubt ourselves, and posited a hypothetical situation where we, as a little kid, tried to, say, show a picture that we'd drawn to a parent. Because of nothing malicious on the parent's part, they were distracted, or the phone rang, or they were stressed about bills, they dismissed the offering. It doesn't matter if this parent was loving and attentive the other 95% of the time. As children, these experiences form the basis of how we understand and interact with the world. These are sometimes referred to as core beliefs, and there's a great The Oatmeal comic about this same concept using that term. I'll link to it on the website. But Tara used a different term to describe these beliefs. 
She said they became religious in their quality. This idea was strangely coinciding with some of my research for my course involving cultural religions, but what Tara's articulation of the issue helped open up for me was how difficult it could be to change these fundamental beliefs. I found the term religion, lowercase r, more useful than beliefs because to believe something is often thought of as a choice. When we hear something like, I believe in gay marriage, what we often understand in our heads is, I choose to believe in gay marriage. But as Matthew Geertz, one of the historians I was reading for my research, says, our religious beliefs are located beyond conflicted discourse. He was referring to this within a system of a culture, but I think it also happens within the system of our own minds. Okay, sorry, I'm going to get heady for a second before I get back to boys, but what if I told you that you have your own personal religion that is made up of the entire way you perceive the world through your mind? This is because we are only ever able to interact with the world through the processor of our brain. So for instance, gravity is part of your personal religion. You can't see it, but everything you've experienced since you were born has reinforced the idea of gravity. Whenever gravity acts in a weird or unexpected way, it flummoxes us. Consider picking up a carton of milk you think is full but is actually empty. Try to test the power of gravity, or our belief in gravity, and we get nervous. Try placing a full glass of water a quarter of the way off the edge of a table and see how comfortable you feel. But gravity more or less works the same way on all of us, and so is less likely to be contested or questioned. If we think about how we see ourselves interacting with the rest of the wider world, though, these similar ideas creep in. Are you the kind of person who asks for something even if you think it's likely you won't get it? Or are you the kind of person who only asks for things you're fairly sure you will get? Do you trust your instincts and act on them, or do you like to run everything by a friend or a partner? Do you like plans, or do you enjoy playing things by ear? And, to bring it laboriously back to boys, these things inevitably manifest in dating. I, for instance, will ask for the thing even if I think I might not get it, and be terrified of hearing no. I do not trust my instincts, which makes acting on them terrifying. I run everything by friends, and, as you may have sensed, I love, love a plan. None of these things are a choice. They're built into the way I interact with the world. Also, deep down, I have a profound belief that things, good things like Calvin, just won't work out. I was working hard, very hard, to fake myself out and convince myself that they would, but it was a struggle. But more importantly, this gave me a new way to view Calvin's, let's say, inconsistent actions. I'd gotten a first glimpse of insight into this during my trip to Glasgow, learning that he had body image issues, learning about his other insecurities. But now, rather than inexplicable bugaboos, they were psychological realities. It also helped me explain one of the harder problems I was wrestling with. I had specifically told him in Glasgow how much it hurt me to have him ghost, so why was he doing it again, if that was indeed what he was doing? What if the thing that was keeping him from writing back, even if it was to say, listen, Charlie, I don't think it's going to work out, wasn't a lack of consideration or a heretofore unappreciated cruelty, but rather something closer to psychological paralysis. This new way of viewing Calvin, of viewing the world really, didn't relieve me of my pain or anxiety about the situation, but it did help me see it less as a curse specific to me. Whatever was happening here, it wasn't about something I did or didn't do. What I wouldn't realize until later was that there was probably little or nothing I could do to combat it. 
I'll tell you what did make me feel better, for a while anyway. There's a problem with the way I've told this story so far. As part of my attempt to play it so chill and so cool for Calvin, I continued with some light hooking up. I had two semi-regular hookups. Theo, a pharmacist who played video games, had a nipple ring, and was a total sweetheart. And Laurent, a French scientist who had an apartment to himself in the center of town, and who was good for a cuddle in addition to his other talents. In another time of my life, having two generally available guys I enjoyed spending bedroom time with would have seemed like unbelievably good fortune. But one of the curses of modern gay life, and also sometimes a blessing, is Grinder. I suppose I haven't spent a lot of time yet here talking about Grindr, but along with the various other hookup apps, most notably Scruff, though there are a handful of others, these apps are a strange and fascinating addition onto the sexual and social life of the gay male. Their primary function is for guys to find other guys to have sex with, but in their different, peculiar ways, they play a strange and often unpredictable role in gay relationships. One strange thing about Grindr is that, even though I'd say its primary use is for hookups, guys are on there for all sorts of reasons. Some guys are looking for sex, others dates. I've run across more than a handful of guys who are, quote, just looking for friends, which feels kind of like someone looking for a salad at a White Castle, even more so when their profile picture is just of their torso. And sometimes what they say they're looking for isn't exactly what they're actually looking for, and assuming as much can get awkward fast. Another peculiar thing about Grindr is that it's always showing you the 50 or so closest guys to you. If you mostly use it from home, it would not be uncommon to see the same people over and over again. So whenever someone new stumbled into my radar range, they stood out. And let me tell you, Jack stood out. The record shamefully shows that upon messaging Jack, I was pretty unabashedly looking for a hookup. I'm going to exercise my executive control here and choose not to share the exact language of our first few exchanges, but the long and short of it was, I was looking for some action, and he was visiting Brighton from London and hanging out with some friends. I'm more of a fun, after-drinks kind of guy, he said in response to one of my more forward requests. So does that mean we're getting a drink? I replied. I don't know, he said, and then in response to a line in my profile about not having my beard anymore. Why are you beardless? Because it's summer. Madness! Madness, I say! I've got some good stubble on at the moment. I sent him a selfie. When he didn't respond, I followed up with, Doesn't do it for ya? Nah, so cute. Let's make out. He replied to this with a selfie of his own, and a disclaimer. Not gonna lie, that's a pretty terrible photo, and it took me four tries. Jack nodded his best. Are you trying to convince me not to make out with you? It's not working. Damn it! A pox on your house! You Brits in your poxes. <laughs> okay, let's go for a drink. We exchanged phone numbers and made plans to meet up later that night. He was hanging with his friends and I was getting a drink with my housemates, which is only important in the beer math, accounting for a couple of pints going into the date with Jack. We'd planned to meet at Churchill Square in Brighton, which sounds like a dignified stately intersection but is actually a shopping mall, though admittedly an upscale one. I was keyed up as I made my way through Brighton to meet him. My meeting with Jack fell under the strange subset of date that I can only classify as date I didn't know I was going on when I woke up that morning. This needs to be differentiated from a hookup. 
Hookups in the grand scheme of things are pretty strange, even if they become kind of normalized, but because the whole event is strange from beginning to end, it's kind of a matching set. Moreover, the stakes for your average hookup are usually fairly low. I was going on a date, but with most dates, I'd had a day or two, or five, or fifteen, to prepare emotionally for it. Going on this date, given how rapidly it had come together, was exhilarating, but it had also raised the stakes. The other obnoxious but necessary component of all this was that the last date I'd gone on not knowing it was going to happen that morning was my first date with Calvin. There was a delightful, forward-flinging momentum to the whole thing that gave it an unreal magic air, one that begged to be questioned but that I delighted in not questioning. Besides, this was one of the things I was trying to work on, as inspired by Tara Brock, trying to stay in the moment and not creating needless suffering by dwelling in the past or grasping for the future. Let's just focus on the thing right in front of us, I thought to myself as we made our way down to the Fiddler's Elbow, the same pub I'd gone to with Robbie nearly six months earlier. Oops, so much for staying in the moment. At that moment, the thing right in front of me was Jack. Jack was gorgeous. Like, he could have probably made a go at a career as a model, Actually, he did briefly. I modeled a dance company tank top once, he told me earlier that day. It was the beginning and the end of my modeling career. Pixar, it didn't happen, I said. He texted one over. I don't look like this. It's a lie. Hubba hubba. Jack was 26 years old, which I suppose there was, is, something going on on the whole age front that probably deserves some interrogation. But I'm not sure I'm up for it just now. Let's focus more on Jack. He worked at a craft market in a touristy bit of London, selling hand-painted ties and jewelry made out of silverware. I'm not a very ambitious person, he told me early on. The admission hit me strangely, in a way I hadn't expected. It felt somewhat adult in its honesty, if that's not too much of a stretch, even as it sort of established the parameters of an easygoing lifestyle. He lived in London with his parents, his mother painted most of the ties he sold, though said he had his own part of the house. I couldn't really judge, having spent the previous year living with my grandmother out on Shelter Island. Him acknowledging his lack of ambition weirdly gave me permission not to care about it. We had our next pint in a park where they'd set up a beer garden for the, quote, summer. I should note that on this summery day, it was in the mid-50s. We wrapped our coats around ourselves and shivered on a park bench as we drank fancy IPAs. Jack was funny and sweet and pretty silly. He kind of had the disposition of a British Muppet. He had gone to university in Wales, studying what exactly I seem to have forgotten. He told me about the ins and outs of the craft market where he worked, the competition for good placement, the camaraderie of the sellers, the dangers of getting stuck in the sun or in the rain. I pretty much read books and gossip all day. He worked an odd schedule, so his days off weren't always weekends. It was a Friday and he had to head back to London the next morning to work at the market on Sunday. He was also a smoker, which, if I'm being completely honest, I hated. I've written guys off completely before for being cigarette smokers. I don't like the way they smell, I don't like the way it makes their mouths taste, but this brings us to a principle I wouldn't completely figure out for another year or so. It goes something like this. For people we really like, we forgive them their flaws. For people we don't, we count them. I guess what I mean to say is, I don't want to date a smoker who I'm not already seriously crushing on. After losing most of our body temperature in the park, we headed to the seaside, back to Envy, which I'd last set foot in with Sam, he of the, oh, is this a date, date? 
It seemed that I was uninterested in finding any new drinking establishments at this point in the year. It was a Friday night, so the place was a little bit crowded, but no dancing had broken out yet. To the best of my recollection, we ended up sitting on the patio. We discussed briefly our grinder habits. How successful are you on there, usually? He asked. Note, this conversation has been lightly edited since I'm fairly sure my grandmother will be listening to this podcast. Eh, not great, but then I'm probably pickier than I should be. Ooh, I feel special. You should. How about you? What's your grinder success rate? <laughs> Just two days, total. He paused. And a lot of teasing old men. I allowed myself ten seconds to consider whether I was the exception or the rule. I'm not much of a hooker-upper, he said. It was a sentiment I could relate to, even in my current phase of looking for emotional relief by being a little slutty. There's a YouTube video Fati and I share to one another every so often that shows a cartoon rabbit singing... And in our current sex-saturated media culture, it's hard not to feel this way. Sometimes it feels as if almost everyone else in the world is having sex every day of the week. But if we're being level-headed, the number of sex-everyday people out there has to be small. I haven't, like, taken a poll or anything, but it seems that even my most, let's say, sexually prolific friends wouldn't support this theory. I mean, Christ, who can do that much laundry? To Jack, I said, in an ideal world, I wouldn't be either which I hoped qualified as me showing solidarity while not 100% behaving that way. I wish I had more information on the exact machinations of this next part, but the short version is, I took Jack home with me. The only record I have of whatever it is we got up to was our text exchange the next morning, just after he left to catch the train back to London. I left my overpriced spoon ring. Now we'll have to see each other again. Come back to bed, I wrote back. I wish I could use a fourth orgasm. So, I guess we did okay. Sorry, Grandma. Jack was turning into a pretty good distraction from Calvin. I was, quote, giving Calvin room. And on some level, it seemed that the easiest way to go about it was to have someone else take up his space. The chat with Jack was light and sweet. At one point, talking about going to see live music, Jack confessed he wasn't much of a gig person. I'm not a crazy gig person either, but every now and again I go a little gig crazy. I'm also into classical concerts. It wasn't information I usually volunteered, but it seemed fairly harmless. Ooh, how sophisticated. I'm still trying to recover from our initial interaction where I just wanted to get into your pants. <laughs> I know, right? You slut. Stuck out tongue emoji. Do you play any instruments? Shitty guitar. Ha. <laughs> you? Shitty violin. LOL. Planning our next rendezvous proved to be only slightly less tricky than planning any of the less conveniently located gentlemen I'd gone on dates with. Due to Jack's wonky schedule, we ended up shooting for a week later, which happened to correspond with an event I'd been invited to at the U.S. Ambassador's residence in Regent's Park. I would head up to London the day before, visit the National Archives in Kew to do research, before meeting up with Jack and spending the night at his place. Unfortunately, I got stuck in a rainstorm on my way to the archives, and spent most of the day slightly damp and very cold in the archival air conditioning. I warned Jack that I was wet and grumpy on my way to meet him. You don't look that wet, he said, walking up to me and giving me a quick kiss. I think the only thing left to dry out are my socks. Ew.
We had spent much of the previous few days talking about where we'd find vegetarian food. Again, why are they so worried that I won't be able to find food? It's adorable, I guess, but also a little unnecessary. Fortunately, I knew of a pretty good Hare Krishna restaurant just off of Soho Square Gardens where you can get far too much food for eight pounds. Jack hadn't sold much at the market that day. He earned his money on a commission. So rather than head to a pub, we went to a nearby Tesco Express where they were having a sale on one of my favorite things in the UK, canned gin and tonics. A quick word about these. They are not as good as real gin and tonics. However, they are more or less delicious, and what you lose in actual gin and tonic flavor, you more than make up for in the convenience of not having to carry around a bottle of gin, nor find tonic with carbonation still in it. Tesco's was having a sale on a package of 10, so we grabbed a pack and headed to Soho Park and proceeded to get drunk on a bench. A man after my own heart. At a certain point, we started making out right there in the open like a couple of teenagers. I kept waiting for someone to cough politely, but I suppose Soho Square has seen worse. Probably a lot worse, if I'm being honest. At some point before dark had fallen, we decided it would be best to head back to Jack's. Jack lived between the neighborhoods of Balham and Stretham, or as he liked to call it, St. Retham. And as we walked from the tube to his house, I tried to imagine what it must have been like to grow up here, to be a child, a teenager. I didn't have to imagine for very long. I knew that Jack lived with his parents, but when we'd talked about it, he'd made it sound like he had his own part of the house, which I had sort of assumed meant a separate entrance, maybe even something like an in-law apartment. What he'd meant, though, was that he had a bedroom. Which, like, free bedroom in London, I get it. And I think had I known what the actual setup of his living situation was, I would have gone ahead and stayed over anyway. But what happened was, he opened the door to his house, I walked into the front hall with all of my stuff, and I was immediately confronted by his parents. Several things happened at once. One, we did introductions. I can't remember if Jack introduced us or if I introduced myself. Whatever it was, I'm sure I was on some sort of social autopilot. Two, Jack's dad offered to make me a margarita. Side note, this is going to make me sound like a lush, but I really like margaritas. And as Jack's mom and dad seemed very nice, I was momentarily tempted to say yes. Also, I was still a little bit tipsy from the park bench G&Ts, and therefore more inclined to accept another drink. Three, Jack put the kibosh on that right away. Four, Jack whisked us up the stairs and into his bedroom and shut the door. I wouldn't realize it until much later, but that 30-second interaction in the front hall of Jack's parents' house would amount to the first, and to date the only time, I've met the parents of someone I was actively romantically involved with. Jack's bedroom was a mess, but kind of adorably so. Also, I'm a pretty messy room-haver, so I can't really judge. A tower PC grunted in the corner, connected to a flat-screen monitor. Clothes hung from every furniture surface like colorful moss, and posters covered every inch of the wall like lichen. His bed was unmade, which he apologized for. I mean, it wasn't going to stay made for long, I said. Jack put on a movie. I believe it was Maze Runner. The night was slow and lazy. Jack enjoyed a bit of weed, which so do I, but hadn't done much of in Europe, since most people in Europe smoke spliffs, which they call joints, a mixture of tobacco and marijuana, and I still couldn't handle the tobacco. Jack was amazed that I would even consider smoking a pure marijuana cigarette, and rolled one for me with an air of, whatever you say, man, like I'd ordered a bowl of ketchup as an entree at a restaurant. I don't remember us being crazy stoned, but then again, I do remember sleeping very well that night, so who knows? After the maze runner, we cuddled and chilled out for a bit, had another couple of tin G&Ts, and then started fooling around again. By this time, it was somewhere in the vicinity of 11, 
Jack said his parents went to bed early, and I had started to get a little more relaxed, not needing to be quite so quiet. Suddenly, the front door of Jack's room flew open. Jack, came a woman's voice, not his mother's, younger. You'll never believe it. Me and Jenny just got kicked out of the pub. Oh my god! In a motion so fluid, I had to believe it wasn't the first time this had happened. Jack swept the duvet cover over us and did a kind of gymnastic roll and tumble so that both our heads were near the pillow. Christ, Lucy, don't you knock? He said angrily. I was caught somewhere near a yelp and a guffaw. Sorry, 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 she repeated outside the door. Jack was probably more embarrassed than I was. Ugh, she's always doing this, he said. It makes me mental. I couldn't stop laughing. It's not funny. But he started cracking his own smile. This dark is all behind us. There's nothing to fear now, nothing at all. When we woke up in the morning, his parents had already gone, but his sister was in the kitchen as Jack made me breakfast of guacamole and toast. She insisted on telling us the story of how she and Jenny had gotten kicked out of the pub last night and how they now had a lifetime ban, though I seem to recall their infraction not being worthy of quite so hefty a penalty. It was interesting seeing the sibling dynamic between Jack and Lucy. I hadn't really conceived of Jack as a younger sibling before, but it seemed to make sense now. Still, Lucy's presence, to be fair, in her own home, put a bit of a damper on me and Jack's morning. Eventually I had to shower, though records seemed to indicate that Jack joined me, and put on my suit. Jack gave me a lift to the tube, which was very nice of him, and we kissed goodbye. Oh, and the party at the ambassador's house was great. Stephen Fry gave a toast, and I stopped by the front door of 221B Baker Street on my way home. What's not to like? On the train ride back to Brighton, Jack texted me to ask how the party was. Drank too much, I said. Eep! I shouldn't have hidden that last G&T in your bag. I opened my backpack to find one of the tinned gin and tonics hidden amongst my clothes. What? Best surprise ever! Toad's drinking it now. I sent him photographic evidence. <laughs> you devil. You bring out the devil in me, I said. My bad, he replied. At least you had guap for breakfast. That's healthy. That's true. Okay, so you bring out the devil and the angel in me. Jack was having an interesting effect on me, that is, of course, in relation to Calvin. On the most basic level, he was a good distraction from the continued lack of communication from the North, giving me someone else to flirt with over text while I waited for Calvin to do whatever it was he needed to do. But more importantly, meeting Jack had, in a way, made Calvin less of a precious commodity. If Calvin ended up disappearing completely, a possibility I was starting to try and ready myself for, it would be disappointing. But if there was a Jack, or even someone else after him, the loss might not be quite as devastating as it had been the first time around. Yes, the differences between Jack and Calvin were many. Did I feel the same all-consuming attraction to Jack that I had felt for Calvin? Not exactly, but I did like hanging out with him, both in and out of bed, and having him so nearby in London was kind of a delicious luxury. A few days after our sleepover at his parents, I was back up in London with my friend Sian, who had been my housemate in Brighton but had moved up to London. We spent the day picnicking on Primrose Hill, and after, we'd gone for a walk along the canals to Camden Town, where I found a charming used bookstore. I bought a copy of The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay for Jack, who had finished his last book and was in need of another. 
I thought I'd heard him mention that he hadn't read Cavalier and Clay yet, and I knew it was a good, weighty tome that would keep him busy for at least a week. Plus, you know, it had gay stuff in it. I sent him a sneaky text to see if he was working at the market, and after confirming that he'd be there, I popped over to accost him. He seemed genuinely surprised, though not rom-com surprised. You're here! But more uncanny surprised. What are you doing here? I bought you a book, I said. Of course, I had not just bought him a book. I had bought him a moment, or even worse, a symbol. I'm not sure if I knew it before I handed it over, but this was me trying to show that I wasn't just some guy he hid upstairs in his bedroom. I was interested in something real, that I thought about him when he wasn't there. I handed over the copy of Cavalier and Clay, hoping, let's be honest, expecting, he'd coo over it, give me a kiss, maybe. Oh, I've already read it, he said, and handed the book back to me. A moment later, an older couple came up to the table to look at a pendant made out of a repurposed fork, and so I took the book and said I'd talk to him later. I was thrown. I wandered through the streets around the market for a few minutes with the clear and horrible realization that not only had I misinterpreted what Jack was looking for, I had gotten it wildly wrong. Maybe I was just a flash in the pan, a quick screw, something fun and dumb and easy, And wasn't that okay? Why did it have to be more than that? A few minutes later, he texted me. They left, like, immediately. We could have hung out more. I checked out where I was. I had sort of wandered in a circle. And so I went back to his table. He asked one of his colleagues to watch his table for a moment while he popped off to have a cigarette with me. We chatted uninterestingly for a few minutes, but what I remember most from that was that something had come loose just then. As if by turning down the book, he had broken whatever spell it was we'd been operating under. What did the two of us really have in common? I mean, he smoked, for Christ's sakes. What was the difference here? That he was cute? He seemed to like me, but then also not enough to accept my gift. No, that wasn't it. It was that he didn't register it as a gift, and that I needed him to, apparently rather badly. His ten-minute break was up pretty quickly, and so I kissed him goodbye, his mouth lousy with tobacco flavor, and let him get back to work. That little kiss cheered me up, he texted me later. Such a tease seeing you all of 30 seconds. We only chatted a little bit more after that. I had my Fulbright trip to Scotland coming up, which I'll admit was more than just a scheduling complication, but the time away put a kind of weird stasis on things for a while. In July, he said hi when he saw me on Grinder while he was up visiting a friend near Brighton, We chatted amicably, but it became clear that neither one of us seemed willing to make a real, declarative move towards seeing the other. It's possible I haven't seriously re-examined my time with Jack until now, but I see that really it was me who took my foot off the gas, and not the other way around. All I can say in my defense now was that I was feeling some kind of way about boys and feelings and relationships, and whatever Jack and I had going was more fragile than I'd thought it was. But the fact that my simply taking my foot off the gas was enough to slow the car completely was a sign in and of itself. Not to take this metaphor too far, but also, let's do it. But a nascent romance is more like one of those cars from Driver's Ed, where there's a second set of pedals for the passenger seat. If Jack had been as gung-ho as I'd been, at some point I'd have either A, gotten over Cavalier Gate, or B, told him about it and dealt with it head-on. In the end, though, I had bigger fish to fry.
On June 8th, which was between my first and second date with Jack, I sent Calvin one last message where I managed to say regulated. Just your periodic reminder that I still like you, I still miss you, and that I'm still looking forward to seeing you, and that I hope you're doing okay amongst all the bullshit. I was able to hold off for almost two weeks this time, with the assistance of Jack, to be sure. But the day after the book incident, and just five days before I was supposed to head to Glasgow, still having heard nothing, I started getting fast and loose with my texts and my feelings. I wish I knew what you were thinking, I wrote. The next day, things got messy. I keep thinking that if I can come up with the right string of words, it'll get you to respond. This is, of course, assuming you're reading the messages that I'm sending. I can't tell you how much I'd like to hear from you, even if it's just to know that you're doing okay, or just to leave you alone. The silence is killing me. I don't remember where I was when I sent those texts, but I remember where I was when I got the reply. I was sitting at a picnic bench on the University of Sussex campus, under a bright blue English summer sky, chatting with my course mates, having a bite of lunch as we all took a break from paper writing. I remember looking at my phone, reading Calvin's reply, and then feeling like I'd suddenly been plunged underwater. He'd written back. You're looking for a story, and I don't want to be in it. Find what you're looking for. I'm not a part of this anymore. I really don't want a big back and forth about this, so please don't drag it out. Next time on the final episode of Serial Dater UK Edition. Serial Dater is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me. Editorial help from Olivia Wolfgang-Smith, Fatih Ahmed, and Anna Marquardt. Music by Tongues. You can listen to their EP, Fight, on Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon Music. For more information and to see the music video for their single, Not Like the Real Thing, head to their website, www.tonguesmusic.com. Calvin, played by Callum Barclay. Jack, played by Alistair James Merton. You can find links to more of their work by heading to our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. There, you can also find info, links, and photos related to this episode. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at SerialDaterPod, 
and email us at SerialDaterPodcast at gmail.com. You can support Serial Dater by retweeting, reposting, and by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which helps other people find it. You can donate to Serial Dater by going to our homepage and clicking the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner. Extra special thanks as always to the U.S.-U.K. Fulbright Commission, who I expect at some point are going to have to defend this project in front of some sort of investigatory Senate committee. This podcast is a work of memoir. It reflects my present recollection of past events. Some names and characters have been changed, some events have been compressed, and some dialogue has been recreated. (laughs) ¶¶